Welcome back. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the very best and latest in the world of regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's senior editor in the Asia-Pacific region, and it's great to be back in your feed again this week. We have a couple of interesting stories for you today, starting with this basic question. Why are health insurers so keen to get their hands on fitness data generated by your smartwatch? Australia is pondering this issue at the moment. Although health insurers in the country aren't legally allowed to discriminate against anyone requesting a policy, they are allowed to offer discounts to those who demonstrate that they're leading healthy lifestyles. Fine. But does offering discounts to the Fitbit Virtuous ultimately lead to discrimination against those who don't want to hand over their fitness data? It's a great yarn, and Laurel Henning will be joining us from Sydney to walk us through it. First up, though, to Malaysia, where competition enforcers are examining ways of strengthening leniency provisions. What are leniency provisions, I hear you ask? Well, in the view of most enforcers, leniency or even immunity deals are an important means by which to coax whistleblowers into the open to reveal cartel or anti-competitive arrangements with the assurance that they will receive favourable treatment. Now, Malaysia has had such provisions in place for eight years now, but they have never been used successfully. That fact, in turn, has sparked a conversation about how the provisions should be changed and there are now plans in place. Jet Tomaso Santos is our Southeast Asia correspondent speaking to me from Jakarta, but recently returned from a trip to Malaysia where she examined the debate about the leniency policies. Uh, Jet, firstly, uh, maybe describe to us Malaysia's leniency program as it stands and also tell us something about the regulator's experience with it so far. Okay, so James, on the face of it, uh, the Malaysian Competition Commission's leniency regime looks a lot like those um, in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, so that is, if your company goes to the MYCC to say, you know, we're part of a cartel and here's evidence of it, then you will be eligible for a reduction in financial penalties of you know, up to 100% if you're the first one to come forward. If the company is a cartel ring leader, though, or if it coerced other companies to join the cartel, then it'll be something less than 100%. In other cases, like if your company isn't the first one to come forward, or say if the MyCC has already started investigating your cartel before you decided to apply for leniency, then the law gives the commission a lot of flexibility in deciding what to do. So both in terms of how much it can reduce the fines and the requirements for the leniency applicants to fulfill. So the Malaysia Competition Commission has been promoting this program pretty actively through workshops and seminars over the past uh, eight years. But since the guidelines were issued um, back in 2014, it's only really had four applications. And as you said, none of them uh, have been successful. This means MyCC hasn't also been able to detect new cartels courtesy of the program. And this has been frustrating for the MYCC. Uh, In fact, its chief executive, Iskandar Ismail, told the conference last spring that investigating cartels without the aid of leniency applicants is sort of like searching in the dark. Okay, so Jet, in other jurisdictions around the world, leniency programs work without too many problems. Why hasn't it been working well in Malaysia? Well, first, we have to understand that leniency programs really do take a while to gain traction. 
you know, for a company to decide to come forward, uh, the risk of getting caught and getting a significant fine has to far outweigh the benefits of participating in a cartel. So if we look at Malaysia, at the time the leniency guidelines were issued in 2014, the regulator had only issued two infringement decisions um, so far. The first one was against a cartel of uh, floriculturists, and that's on no fines. Uh, and the second one, it was on the country's two main airlines, so two huge companies, Malaysia Airlines and Air Asia. But the fines were equivalent to about $2.7 million each. Uh, so that controversial airline decision was eventually overturned, but at the time, you know, the fines imposed didn't really come across as severe. Uh, this was followed by uh, a number of relatively small cartel decisions, like, you know, we saw $86,000 imposed on 26 ice manufacturers, you know, $56,000 for 14 bakeries, and $145,000 for four container depot operators and the ID company that helped them fix, you know, the prices they were imposing. These decisions don't necessarily you know, strike fear in the heart of companies that are presumably making substantial profits from cartel activities. Having said that, the MyCC has been attracting some leniency queries, as we said, for applicants so far, which means there are companies out there who may be thinking the benefits of leniency will outweigh its costs. But why haven't they been successful? And that goes to what experts say is the third cornerstone or pillar of a successful leniency program, which is you know, actually having a well-designed program with attractive incentives, clear and predictable procedures, and of course, legal certainty. Okay, so the question now turns to whether the planned amendments will be able to fix Malaysia's leniency program and make it attractive enough, right? So, so what's your take on that? As always, the devil is in the details, or in this case, it's the lack of it. First, if we look at the proposed amendments, they make it clear that uh, a company is only eligible for a 100% reduction in fines if it's the first to come forward before an investigation starts and it provides use useful information, and if it didn't coerce any other enterprise into joining the cartel. If it's a coercer, the maximum reduction in fines is 50%. Now, that's new. Uh, that wasn't um, in the original or that isn't in the original law. What happens now if your company is the second or third member of the cartel to apply? Uh, the proposed amendment now just says your company is eligible for, you know, quote unquote, a reduction in financial penalties. Again, if you apply before the investigation starts and provide useful information. It doesn't say exactly by how much, which is a level of clarity that most companies would need. Um, what if you apply for leniency after the investigation starts? Again, the amendments say you may be eligible for a reduction in financial penalties, but again, it doesn't say by how much. So um, last month, there was a conference in Kuala Lumpur organized by MyCC, and one of the speakers there from the Associated Chinese Chamber of Commerce in Malaysia, uh, Li Hengui, he said, so this lack of detail, uh, it sort of cuts both ways. Basically, with MyCC retaining substantial discretion in how it implements the leniency program, it does have flexibility, but at the same time for businesses, this creates uncertainty. And, you know, that's one thing no business wants. Of course, all these proposed amendments are just one aspect. Now, MyCC has actually been stepping up its enforcement game, especially against bid-rigging cartels. We just saw them issue a bid-rigging fine this week, its very first one. 
And the MyCC can still issue more detailed implementing guidelines after the amendments are passed. So those things will determine whether the leniency program will actually become successful in the future. Okay, so, and, and let me be devil's advocate here, uh, Jet. If the, the MyCC is already finding and uh, taking down cartels, is it really that important for it to have an attractive leniency program or can it manage uh, just fine without one? I guess it can continue with business as usual, but having a successful leniency program would definitely help speed things up, both in terms of detecting cartels and completing investigations. In other jurisdictions, in fact, um, it's not just uh, the detection that's a benefit from leniency program. They've found that it can actually deter the formation of cartels in the first place. But beyond Malaysia, there's a push for more Southeast Asian competition regimes to put in place attractive leniency programs so that regulators can work across borders to take down regional cartels. Say, if you have a member of a regional ASEAN cartel, for example, who may be keen on applying for leniency in Singapore, it might be wary of doing so if it won't find similar benefits in Malaysia or other countries. In the region, uh, so far, only Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines have leniency programs in place. And only Singapore's program is working so far. Though in the Philippines, um, even though it has a relatively good one, since it offers immunity from suit, a relatively rare feature of leniency programs, it is, as I said, relatively new. It was only issued in 2019. Thailand is also now reviewing its law, and its chairman says actually adding a leniency program is one of their main goals. Okay, so when is all of this going to happen, and and what can we expect in terms of these amendments? Right, so the proposed amendments were finally publicized in May. Uh, The MyCC has been working on them since 2019. MyCC will now take all the comments and come up with, um, I think, a final version, hopefully to be tabled in Parliament by the end of the year. So there's a lot of support from politicians, from from the government for these amendments, uh, which actually will give the commission merger control power. So that is the main uh, feature of the proposed amendments. The leniency program is just uh, part of it. Um, So because of all this, it is expected to be passed and enacted by early next year. Following that, we'll have to wait for MyCC to come up with more detailed implementing guidelines. And then we'll see if it will be able to take the amendments and turn them into what is an attractive and transparency and effective leniency program. Jet, thank you so much for taking an interest in this story. It's great to have this kind of detailed reporting out of Southeast Asia. Let's talk again very soon. Okay, great. Thanks, James. Jet Mazza-Santos is MLEX's Southeast Asia correspondent. She was speaking to us from Jakarta. And her analysis of this issue is ready for you to check out. Just head to our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab for the very latest reporting and analysis from MLEX's editorial team. Subscribers will also notice a portfolio of work relating to moves to update the 2010 Competition Act and the Competition Commission Act in Malaysia. All the background you need to make sense of these developments is right there at your fingertips. This is MLEX's weekly podcast, James Paniki with you, and in just a moment we'll be asking you a question about your smartwatch. Why is your health insurer so keen to review your fitness stats?
And don't forget that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Remaining in the region now, and it's been several years that Australia has been considering updating its privacy laws, which are now 30 years old and, according to most observers, ill-equipped to manage modern challenges. One such challenge is the use of health and fitness data collected by smartwatches and passed on to health insurance companies. Now, Australia, of course, has a public health system and private health insurance is simply for those who want to cut the lines particularly for elective surgery. And the government has always been keen to see people take up private health insurance policies to lessen the burden on the public health system. Now, under laws relating to the health insurance industry, private health insurers can't discriminate against those who want to take out policy. It's because of that that the hoovering up of sensitive fitness data is raising a lot of questions. Our Sydney correspondent Laurel Henning hasn't allowed the inclement weather of late to deter her from filing a fine piece of analysis on this very issue and she joins us right now. So uh, Laurel, firstly tell me something about why you decided to look at this issue. Yeah James, I'd been reading and also hearing about a lot of conversation to do with the amount of data that smartwatches produce not only that, but then also the amount of that data that insurance companies were collecting and their increasing interest in that data and how the collection of it, particularly from wearable technology, could transform the insurance industry and not just the health insurance or life insurance industry, but the insurance industry across the board. And in that regard, the idea was that really the only thing that was going to hold back potentially this technological transformation that the insurance industry could be on the cusp of is the idea of sort of burdensome regulation. But what I hadn't heard as much about were the protections that are in place for consumers or the potential regulatory uh, exposure that this kind of data aggregation creates for insurers. So it seemed to me that there were bigger privacy and consumer law risks at play here than were being discussed. Okay, so what were the main things that you discovered in your conversations? Well, I'd spoken to a few privacy lawyers and insurance lawyers, and I felt like I was getting somewhere. And then this new piece of research was published a couple of weeks ago by academics, including Sophia Bernards, which really pushed me over the finish line with this piece. And and I interviewed Bernards and found that insurance companies were sort of skimming a lot of our online data. So this went way beyond what I was looking at with wearable technology specifically. Uh, In her research, she had looked at social media um, and also loyalty programs. So the data aggregation from both of those areas as well, just to to name a couple. But when I spoke with her and discussed uh, wearable technology in particular, um, and a response that I'd had from one Australian health insurer over how they use data collected through their wellness app, she said to me that it was sort of fascinating that the company would openly admit to me that while they aren't using that data to price products because of existing Australian health insurance uh, regulation and and measures, but they would use it to to customise offers to you. So when we look at insurers that offer rewards or discounts for consumers who can show they're moving more or making healthier lifestyle choices, yes, while you aren't priced according to your wellness data, the discounts you receive, well, Is discounting not a form of pricing? That sort of opens up another debate, I think. Yes, indeed. And and what are the concerns for the future of how this data is being used? What's on the horizon on this front? 
So another researcher that I spoke with, Catherine Kemp, who does a lot of work in the privacy law space in Australia, she highlighted to me the fact that in the future, surely there's the potential that insurers will attempt to move away from what's seen as a very traditional risk pooling uh, model in which the overall risks are considered against the prospects of the average consumer. Moving from that towards a future of cherry picking the healthiest individuals, then there's sort of a competition element to that because insurers are then sort of racing to find the cheapest people to have on their books, a race to the lowest risk client, if you will. And this data gives insurers competitive advantages over their rivals, depending on how much they can collect and exactly how they use it. So there are protections in place covering the insurance industry. As you've mentioned, no one can be discriminated against because of their state of health. Yet there are still risks here, uh, right? And I mean, part of that picture is Australia's very slow progress in updating its privacy legislation, which dates back to 1988. Absolutely, James. Until we see stronger enforcement of existing laws on consumer consent, uh, because they are here, they, they already exist in Australia, but they're, they're not enforced at a very uh, high level and better protections as well over the use of information. This is probably an area where consumers would be um, understandably expected to, to hand over perhaps more data than they might intend to. Um, Australia's privacy regulator, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, is really not very well resourced and it doesn't have the same level of penalties at its disposal as the competition regulator, for instance, which itself has taken legal action against uh, technology companies over uh, misuse of consumer data, placing that in consumer law, because it does have access to, to tougher penalties than the than the privacy regulator does. So there were tougher penalties that were proposed for the OAIC um, for privacy breaches some time ago, but they've been very slow to enter into force. And at the same time, there are existing privacy principles that govern exactly what information can be collected and who it can be shared with. But those aren't very strongly enforced. And in the meantime, consumers will largely continue to hit agree probably to terms and conditions rather than spending time reading how their information is gathered and with whom it's shared. Now, Australia has a new government, that of a centre-left party, the Australian Labour Party. With it, there's a new Attorney General, which is the minister responsible for overseeing the privacy legislation. Do we have uh, any sense at this early stage of whether the new government remains committed to updating the legislation? Definitely, James. Uh, The new Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, was actually recently interviewed on uh, this exact point on the ABC's law report, so uh, an interview with the public broadcaster, and emphasised that this is a real priority for the new government. It's something that he definitely wants to see progress on in coming months. And what we're we're waiting for here is a final report from the government in response to a number of consultations that have already happened in relation to this review. But with no clear date uh, or timeline in mind for that response, I wouldn't expect a sudden surge forward on this issue from the new government. Famous last words, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Uh, Laurel, this has been a really fascinating piece of analysis. Thank you so much for covering this issue for us. Thanks, James. Laurel Henning is MLEX's Sydney-based senior reporter. Her analysis on the use of health and fitness data by Australia's insurance industry is over the paywall and ready for you to read. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. 
for all of the very best reporting and analysis from MX's team of journalists around the globe. Our subscribers, of course, also have full access to the portfolio of information dealing with plans to revamp Australia's 1988 Privacy Act. As Laurel mentioned, progress has been slow, but there are some very big ideas already on the table, and the compatibility of future standards with the EU's GDPR is already being discussed and debated. Laurel's reporting on this over the past few years is well worth a read. Alas, that's where we'll have to leave today's podcast. I do hope you can download the show again next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Panicki, and the entire team here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Music